Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. This is a podcast in which every week we choose a situation that is unfolding somewhere in the world, something of a diplomatic sort of political issue, and we break it down uh, for you guys, for our listeners. And there is no one better to do this podcast than this gentleman, Dr. Keith Souter. He's got three PhDs on international politics and he's been a commentator in Australian media for decades on all these issues. You could throw anything at the man. You know, you would be the best dinner party guest (laughs) because you just know something about everything and actually a lot about everything. Uh, especially especially international sort of stuff Thank as you. well. It's like a trivia king you would be. <laughs> and my name is Kate Mack and I do this podcast with you. And so today it's it's actually quite relevant at the moment and it's relevant for the whole world, this topic going forward, because it's about the deterioration of Chinese, Chinese relationships with Australia, but only not only Australia, it's the, the world and how they conduct diplomacy. And in this COVID era, Keith, you know, where they've got a lot to answer to in terms of being the ones responsible for this whole outbreak that has crippled the world, there is so much defiance still. Mm. Well, the, what has brought the issue to the boil this week has been the expulsion from China of two journalists, one from the ABC, the other one from the Financial Review. Uh, they were rescued, in effect, by the Department of Foreign Affairs and uh, managed to get them out of China. Uh, they were being sought by Chinese authorities in regard to Cheng Lei, who's uh, a Chinese-born Australian, very well-known media commentator in China. She was arrested a few weeks ago. She can be held for six months without any charges being brought against her. So you can't do that in Australia. But in China, the police can hold you for six months incommunicado, and then they decide to charge you, perhaps. So Cheng Lei has gone missing, and these two journalists, the last two mainstream media Australian journalists left in China, they have then had to flee the country this week. A total of 17 journalists were expelled from China in the first half of this year. So it's not just Australians. Koreans, Japanese, Americans are also uh, being heard. And what are they saying is the reason for expelling these journalists? Well, that's part of the problem. We're not getting any clear answers. You know, the Chinese government talk about national security issues. And of course, since World War II, this phrase national security, which was invented in the United States, the national security state, as it's called, which began in 1947, that's an idea that is now swept around the world. And so governments, including our own Australian government, will wrap itself up in this um, cloak of national security and not necessarily reveal what's going on. Now, luckily in Australia, we still do have, at least for the moment, more of a uh, a sense of the rule of law. There uh, could be sometimes the involvement of judges and the legal system in restraining government. In China, that simply doesn't exist. So what is interesting is that Australia was one of the first countries to recognise the government of mainland China. This was Gough Whitlam half a century ago. Before the Americans, the Americans were secretly conducting negotiations, but Gough Whitlam was doing it publicly. Um, and uh, the so the Australia has had a long and very fruitful relationship with mainstream China. At least 30%, if not 40% of our exports go to this one country. Um, and so when we hear about a falling out between Australia and China, this is really bad news for Australian producers. 
because China has been a very good market buying pretty well everything we want to sell into China. There's one quite well-known business example of a wine, a very sweet wine, which has been invented expressly for one city in China. But this uh, wine company in Victoria actually has more customers in that Australia in that Chinese city than they have in all of Australia, 26 million people. So we have done very well. It's a billion-dollar industry in red wine alone uh, in China. It's, it's a great industry that Australia has been involved in. So the downturn that we've seen um, partly, I think, is the fault of our own government and partly the fault of the Chinese government. So on, on the... We've seen the United States ramping up its um, concern about China. Now, in a sense, Trump is correct to be concerned about China. China is a major issue in the future for the United States, not at the moment. Trump talks about this massive expansion of um, Chinese defence expenditure. But in fact, the, the United States spends more than the next 12 countries, including China, combined. America is not being outspent on defence. So Trump is, if you like, over-egging the pudding. But if you stand back from an historical point of view, there is a problem. The United States is a superpower, which is now in relative decline, and we've looked at that in this series. China is the rising great power and ultimately will be the competitor. And China originally set the deadline as being 2049, which is the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Revolution. China is actually running ahead of schedule. And under President Xi, the current leader, they're moving ahead even faster. So the confrontation that we're seeing between the United States and China, we do not expect to take place for another 20-odd years. So that has been accelerated. Now, within that, the Australian government has decided to side with the Americans and come out very much almost as a sheriff to assist the Americans in what they're doing. So a lot of the behaviour by the Australian government I don't think has been helpful. Yes, we need to have an investigation of what has gone on with, uh, in Wuhan with the COVID virus, but we should have been worked through the European Union. They, they did a, a much more softly, softly approach, and ultimately that's what got the World Health Organisation involved. And, of course, as we've also looked at at this programme, Obama, when he was president, actually negotiated with China to have American health experts based in China to investigate the outbreak of diseases. So many diseases come out of China. They live far too close to their animals. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> I love the look on your face. Yeah. <laughs> so Obama negotiated this deal and Trump broke it. See, we, we could have had American medical experts in China last year monitoring what was going on. And because Trump didn't implement it, it then suddenly became a, a big issue, which the Chinese then initially tried to hide. So there have been mistakes on the American side and the Australians have, have gone along with it and made those mistakes as well. But also you'd have to say there are problems on the Chinese side because we're not sure what the grand strategy is of President Xi. As I've said, we are expecting this confrontation to take place, but not yet. So President Xi is very impatient. His predecessors always used to say, you, you talk softly and just gradually expand China. You do it in a non-threatening way. My favourite slogan from this era, PRC, People's Republic of China, also stands for please remain calm. And, and Xi has said, no, I'm not going to do that. 
now we see what's called wolf diplomacy. So the wolf is a Chinese series in which Chinese people save the world, not Hollywood actors save the world. And so we now have wolf diplomacy, which is much more in your face. And Qi is obviously very happy to be associated with this much more aggressive approach. So what worries me is that we see both sides on this collision course and observers like myself with a sense of history of saying, we've been here before. Graham Allison at Harvard University has published a a best-selling book who's looked at 500 years of collisions between great powers. And of the 16 case studies, the most recent be between England and Germany, World War I, of the 16 case studies, 12 ended in war. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. We're just talking about China's relationships with the rest of the world and how they're stirring the pot at the moment, which they shouldn't be because they should be on the back foot about the fact that they caused COVID around the world, but they don't. They seem to be striking out at just that time when they should be probably being apologetic and trying to make amends, but they don't seem to care. Um, but we're just talking about, just before the break then, um, about... Um, you know, these 12 case studies that looked at in terms of conflict between great powers and 12 of them out of 16 ended in war. But China has not been to war for a very, very long time, have they, Keith? Well, India might disagree with you. Oh. <laughs> they have a border dispute. Yeah. And the Philippines and others around the South China Sea. You'd have to say that China does not have the reputation the United States has. The United States has well, we're not even sure how many. Are they 300, 400, 500 bases around the world? Depends on how you define a base. Whereas China only has a handful, if that. Now, of course, China is on an upward curve. This Belt and Road Initiative means that it is acquiring more port space, including here in Australia, by the way, Darwin. Uh, so they are buying up the world, but they're not doing it necessarily through military means. So they are going about it softly, softly. They're actually following the British example. If you look at the rise of Great Britain, by the way, it's worth bearing in mind that before the Industrial Revolution in Great Britain, the two major economies in the world were India and China. And that their economies were based on farming. So they, they both represented a major percentage of the global economy insofar as you can work out the records. And then in 1750, we always need to have a convenient date. So when we talk about the Industrial Revolution in Great Britain, we always use 1750, but you know, historians will say, oh, there are signs of it, something earlier, et cetera. But let's go for 1750. So in 1750, the British invent the Industrial Revolution, which is factoring and manufacturing, et cetera. And then it gradually spread out around the rest of the world. So China was then overshadowed. So China was a major economic player because it was a farming society even though many of the things the British used were coincidentally previously invented in China, but there was no commercial motivation. So things like gunpowder, steam engines were invented in China and used as, as fireworks or as toys for children. Whereas the, the British, when they reinvented all these things, used them for military and industrial purposes. And so suddenly then you get this um, expansion of the Western world fueled by the manufacturing revolution. And now we're beginning to see that in China. So China is catching up with the rest of the world and is doing extremely well at that. The people who oversaw that industrial revolution within China, uh, Deng Xiaoping and others, 
said, look, let's do it very quietly and we will do it in conjunction with the rest of the world. We do not want to have wars with people. As you say, China does not have a reputation for being at war, except insofar as it tends to get invaded. Even in the border dispute with India, there's a big debate about you know, who starts these disputes. They've had a few wars with India, whether they started by the Chinese or by the Indians. It's interesting that the Chinese have been, until recently, on a charm offensive. They supply more United Nations peacekeeping forces than any of the other big five of the UN Security Council. Um, they have now got ships back off the east coast of Africa. They were last there in the year 1421 when they were on a voyage from the emperor and they took animals from East Africa and put them in the imperial zoos in China. And then shortly thereafter, China said, we're not going to do any more foreign exploration. Otherwise, we could be sitting here speaking Chinese. Except, And, of course, there is a big debate about when did China first reach Australia and was it around that time. There is a boat in the sands at Geelong in Victoria and we have drawings of it, engravings from the 19th century. So we know there is a boat somewhere there. And the Portuguese say, oh, no, that's one of ours. And the Spanish say, no, 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 it's one of ours. And now the Chinese government is saying, no, no, it's one of ours, even earlier. It goes back to the 15th century. And the Chinese were building boats that were bigger than any other boats afloat until the 20th century. And the Western navies went in for big ships. So the Chinese have got a really big history and a good history, but it's an unusual history. Joseph Needham uh, from Cambridge raised what is called the Needham question, which is if, if China did so well, why did it fail to industrialise? If it invented the gunpowder, if it invented the steam engine, why didn't they put the steam engine on the rails? The British did, centuries after the Chinese were playing with toys. That's the Needham question, and there's been no agreed explanation for that. So China is undergoing this industrial revolution it sees itself as an inheritor of a very long tradition. Uh, it's very proud of its history, but it recognises that it does have periods of turmoil, uh, the warlord period, the bandit period, when the country fell apart. President Xi is saying we will not be a, we're not going to fall apart again. We're going to remain strong, and therefore he is in strong control of the economy. But it means that if China is going to take on this major role, we need to be quite clear about what its strategy is. And at the moment, we're not sure why they should be treating Australian journalists or other foreign journalists so badly. You see, if you have a journalist in your own country, it means that your point of view can be more easily expressed in, say, Australia. If you have an Australian journalist in China, they can give a Chinese perspective, which will be of use to those of us in Australia. If you don't have a journalist there then you're going to be relying on what gets leaked from the intelligence community and others. You don't get a good insight into China. So having journalists in China, be it from Australia or the United States, Korea, whatever, actually assists China in their charm offensive. And President Xi, until recently, was on a charm offensive. But that's what I mean. What's switched and why now during COVID, Keith? Exactly. Particularly when the spotlight is on them now and there is a bit of anger towards them for what is happen across the world? Well, there is a viewpoint that all politics is local. And perhaps President Xi thinks he may be under threat because clearly the Chinese economy is not continuing in the rate that it was. Okay, it's got on top perhaps of the COVID crisis in China, but a lot of its customers haven't, including the United States. So the Chinese economy is suffering, 
because their customers are suffering. People are not buying stuff from China. Brand China has suffered because of this coronavirus crisis. Are there moves within China to remove President Xi? I just don't know. And the, the journalists who've been caught up in this, so it's Bill Bertels from the ABC, Michael Smith from the Financial Review, and, of course, Cheng Lei, uh, who worked for the Chinese government TV station. They may well just be pawns caught up in a much bigger struggle. Nothing that they themselves have said or done has actually caused problems. But it's just that you've now got the struggle that's going on between China and the rest of the world. As they say, when the elephants fight, it's the grass that gets trampled. And so these are people who are just caught up in this media struggle, but are just as small players in a much bigger chess game. Well, let's, let's look at the bigger picture now. Can China do significant damage to us? We yeah. are very reliant on them. And would they be willing to? Well, they have been willing to make life difficult for our barley exporters and our exporters of red wine. These are substances that you can buy elsewhere on the international market. They have not been equally difficult in terms of the supply of uh, iron because you can't get Brazil to expand its mining industry overnight. But of course, in the long term, China will do so. China will use its Belt and Road Initiative to open up mines elsewhere in the world. They do not like being so heavily reliant upon Australia or indeed any other country. And Norway should be reliant on them as well, though, surely, Keith. Exactly. And that is why I think what we're going to be looking at in the future will be um, what is called a, a resilient global supply chain. Get used to the new initials now. So resilient global supply chain. Australia has been working with India and Japan to create um, a new arrangement between those three countries. So Japan will be able to bring technology and the world's third largest economy to the table. India has a large, well-trained workforce and high productive capacity. And of course, Australia has resources. So one of the uh, problems with the COVID crisis has been the disruption to supply chains. And it's revealed our over-reliance upon Chinese manufacturing. For our own goods, we need to be finding a resilient global supply chain, which is not based on China. And so that is the bigger struggle, as far as I'm concerned, that we've not only got the rise of China or return of China, more accurately, return of China to the global order, but we're also um, seeing the way in which there are these internal issues within China, which has seen three Australian journalists treated badly in the last week or last month, including Cheng Lei. And then um, before that, you had 17 other journalists expelled from China in the first half of this year. And then on top of it, you've got the whole debate about how do we create a resilient global supply chain. And so we may well be emerging into a new global order where we're going to have to get used to the fact that we cannot rely too heavily on China, but at the same time, not rely too much on the United States because that's in decline. God, we could talk about this for hours, I feel, but we can't. But as we are, we will revisit this topic again down the track. Dr Keith is always enlightening. Thank you. Global Truths was presented by Dr Keith Suter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.